so many multicultural women try to suppress their differences and, for lack of a better term, act like a white male in order to succeed. And that's uncomfortable. They're going to be expending extra energy to do that. And the company's not going to get their best work. And the company's not going to get the benefit out of the fact that they've got diverse leadership. So being able to bring out the best in multicultural women and to help them see how they can leverage their differences to be a better leader as opposed to just fitting in and trying to be just like everyone else. Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to a company's bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organization that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported, but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace, from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 and the season three finale of the Why Care podcast. My name is Nadia Nagamutu, and I am your host. In this episode, I'm truly honored to be joined by the incredible and inspiring Bonnie St. John. Bonnie's story is one of resilience, overcoming bias, pushing barriers, and innovation to do what has never been done. Despite having her right leg amputated at age five, Bonnie became the first African-American ever to win medals in the Winter Olympic competition, taking home a silver and two bronze medals in downhill skiing in the 1984 Games. In addition to her sporting achievements, she graduated from Harvard University and won the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. She's a best-selling author of seven books, an ex-White House official, a highly acclaimed keynote speaker and leadership expert for the Fortune 500, a television and radio personality, an entrepreneur, owner of Blue Circle Leadership. Bonnie shares the leadership program she has designed to support the challenges is faced by multicultural women in the workplace. We talk about the patriarchy in society and how it plays out in women waiting to be asked for promotion and the cultural expectations that overlay this. She generously shares the core concepts of the program and why it so successfully supports multicultural women to overcome the barriers in their progression. She also shares insights from her book, Micro Resilience, Minor Shifts for Major Boosts in Focus, Drive and Energy. This is such a powerful episode packed with learning and advice. Enjoy. Bonnie, it is an absolute pleasure. I am super, super excited to have you on the YK Podcast Show. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Nadia, I am so glad to be here. We've been collaborators and friends for quite a while now, and I'm uh, really excited to be on your show and be talking to your peeps. I know that we're going to get so much from this session today, our conversation, and I'm excited to leap into it. 
But before we do, I think everyone's going to be really excited and wanting to hear a little bit about you. And I've stalked you and we've shared stories as well. And I've watched your talks and everything that you've done. But it would be great for the listeners to hear from you just because you've got this fascinating personal story. It's a really crazy story. So I grew up in San Diego and my leg was amputated when I was five years old. It was due to a birth defect. The growth was stunted in my leg when I was born. And my father left my mother while she was pregnant with me. And I have an older brother and sister. But so I had a single mom who was a school teacher, which is not a huge salary in, in the US, and uh, raising three kids and one of them disabled. And it was, it was a hot mess, right? <laughs> the one thing you wouldn't expect is that the one-legged girl in San Diego from a family that didn't have a lot of money would become an international skier. You just didn't see that coming. A friend of mine in high school invited me to go skiing with her family. And uh, in order to go, I needed special equipment. So I contacted other amputees I found, you know, and I make that sound so easy. It was really hard. I would be looking at the friend and going, um, really? No, no, I really wanted to go. I really want to try it. And she's a really neat person. But anyways, I found the special equipment. I went on one trip with other amputees to kind of try to figure out what was going on. And then I went with my friend Barb Warmath and uh, went skiing. And what happened, I guess, is when I contacted other amputees to get the equipment and figure out what I was doing, at that time, a lot of other amputees went to national championships for skiers, for one-legged skiers, because it was just like a big reunion for everybody who was into skiing, any disability, not even just one-legged, but any disability. And so it was like a, a mecca that everybody would get together. And so I thought, well, I really want to go to that and see what it's all about. And when you went to national championships, you could either take a lesson on how to race or you could race. So anyway, I thought I want to go, but let me try to get a little practice before I go and make some progress. And I've got a little bit of coaching. I trained myself up a little bit. And lo and behold, when I went to national championships the first time, I qualified for the top racing group by like tenths of a second. I just barely made it into that. So instead of being in the, hey, just go to a clinic and learn how to race or, oh, we'll give you a little bit of coaching to get a little better. I actually got into the top racing group the first time I went and did pretty well. So I thought, wow, I could be a racer. And that's what set me on the journey to get sponsors and get more coaching. And I moved from San Diego to Vermont. And oh, and then I started seeing summers on a glacier. You know, I just kind of on the all in kind of a person. So I ended up being on the US team, winning silver and bronze medal. So I won bronze in the slalom, bronze in the giant slalom, and then silver for overall performance. Oh, I think I have. Let's see if I have my medals here. Oh, wow. I love that you just keep it in a drawer, like just can casually kind of bring it out. Whip it out. Just pull it out. Actually, I had them on my wall for many years, like frame and a poster. And and then I realized when I go out speaking, I like to wear them and to show them to people and touch them. And so now I keep them in a case that I travel with. So I love that. I'd be taking them shopping. I'd be taking them to the school run. I'd just be like, yeah, I'm just <laughs> wearing, wearing my medal. Hey, I'm just wearing <laughs> my Olympic medals because I can, you know. It was quite a journey and it helped me to get a lot more comfortable with myself as a person with one leg, as a person of color, and really find my strengths and overcome as a black person in skiing. You know, I'm actually the first African-American to win 
winter Olympic medal for the U.S. But yeah, there's not very many African Americans who've won winter Olympic medals. And uh, Cool Runnings bobsled, we all know the movie. Do you know what? That just popped into my head, the Cool Runnings movie. Gosh, that takes me back. What an amazing story. Oh, and then I went to Harvard and Oxford and started my own company, all those things, right? How does that happen? How do you get from Paralympic medalist, obviously very well studied, to being invited? I assume it's an invitation to be a White House official. What happened was, as a kid with a disability, I was a real nerd. So a lot of times when other kids were out running around playing, I was studying and reading. So I used to read on the playground when I couldn't play hopscotch with the other girls, you know. So I was very studious. I was very hardworking. And that's actually what made me so successful in skiing. Because if you are just an able-bodied athlete, a lot of it is if you're really good at it, people pick you up and they take you to the next level. There's a circuit, you know. But for one-legged skiing 25 years ago, it was much more, I had to be entrepreneurial. I had to get funding. So I wrote proposals. I got funding. I had to hire coaches and book planes. And so the fact that I was a nerdy kid actually really helped me to be successful and to be able to pull together the resources to make it happen. So I was very nerdy and went to Harvard on scholarship and then Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. I was very driven and I had to be very smart and applying myself in those ways. So that actually helped me to succeed in athletics because of the fact that that I needed that. And then I went on and continued to be able to make a difference in other realms. You've just spoken there about working really hard. Have you ever felt that because of your ethnic background and because of your gender and because of your ability that you've had to work harder in order to prove yourself? That's such an interesting question. In the past, I think I've also answered it by saying, yes, I do. But I also think a white male has to work harder to succeed too. If you really want to reach the top of your profession and what you do, you do have to work harder than everybody else. Do I have to work harder than the best white guy? I don't know. I don't know. I guess my answer is yes, you have to work really hard if you want to innovate. And I had to innovate, you know, to be the one-legged skier that won. I pioneered new ways of skiing. I trained with two-legged skiers. You know, I did really innovative things. And I think anyone who wants to break through and better whatever's out there has to do that. To be the top, you have to work really hard. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are. You know, you have to innovate. You have to do whatever. But it's more the middle level, right? And that's what I see is to achieve a lot and to do well in the workplace or in school or anything in the middle level. I do think it's harder as a woman or as a person of color than not. Maybe there's an unfair advantage that if you show up at the middle level as a woman or a minority, you're less likely to be able to be accepted and given the same props. Yeah. But then I assume, though, because of that middle level acting as potential barriers, that then it might filter out people who could potentially get to. That's true. It's certainly challenging. And you and I both do work to make a difference in corporate America for women and minorities to be able to see Yeah, and that's a nice segue, isn't it, into Blue Circle, your company. What was your reason for setting that up? Well, I was asked to do a lot of speaking, even when I was training for skiing. 
people would say, come and speak to this group, you know, when I was a kid. And I was like, I don't know. Hi, I'm a skier. (laughs) And uh, I learned over time how to use my experiences to make a difference for other people and to understand. First, I didn't understand. It's like, why doesn't everybody do what I'm doing? I don't know. You know? I had to really understand the audiences. And as I was able to do that and give speeches to motivate people to understand what their reality was, I love doing it. So I've been doing motivational speaking for decades. Just love it and just love to be able to have the impact. Loved doing it during COVID. I was doing a lot of virtual speaking too. But uh, back in uh, 2014 or so, we as a company started really looking at training for women's leadership, for leadership in general. And uh, we ended up getting asked to do leadership development specifically for multicultural women. And so that's become a specialty of our company as well, is being able to do that. We looked at a lot of the research. I interviewed a lot of heads of human resources, heads of diversity to really say, you know, what are the unique needs of multicultural women? Here's what I see, here's what I think, but what do you think? And so we ended up coming up with a program that really addressed the unique needs of multicultural women. Even now that we run more courses too that are for all women, I think what we're able to do is do a course for all women, but address some of the needs for multicultural women in that context in a way that I think people often don't. If you haven't focused on that, and you just run a course for all women, you often are not meeting the needs of the multicultural women in the room. And that's so fascinating, I think, for me, because a lot of the clients that I've worked with and know about, they do just tend to run female career progression development programs. Well, it's for all women. So it should work for all women, right? So what is that intersectional need, right, that you see? I'd love to hear some of the themes. What makes multicultural women... And it's interesting, you know, you're saying the world, because we run virtual courses. We run courses that include women in Asia, women in Europe, even women in Australia. We had a course recently that had a woman in, and she was Aboriginal in Australia. So really, we're embracing the world. And the kinds of ethnic issues that crop up are very different in different parts of the world. What happens in the U.S. is very different than the way some of these issues are perceived in Asia already. Because there's different history, right? So you've just talked about an Aboriginal woman. Of course, there's different history in Australia, and that still plays out, that the disparity in Australia, having visited the country, is so apparent still. In South Africa, it's still very apparent. In America, it plays out in a different way in the UK. So that's really fascinating as you pull these global programs together, despite the differences in where people are in the world and despite the history. Are there any themes that still come out time and time again? Well, we start out the course talking about why. Why do you want to get ahead? Because it's about women's leadership. It's about setting them up for success to climb the ladder. And why is it important to have a program for women or for multicultural women? And getting into letting them talk about that. And what's interesting is that the first unit that we cover is on trust and informal networking. And for some women, if you say, have you been discriminated against or do you have trust? Do you, can you rely on other people? They may say, oh, yeah, it's all fine. Everybody treats me just fine. I'm great. And then as we start to unpack and as they start to listen to other women, often they start to realize people are often careful with multicultural women. So like a white male, a senior white male 
may be concerned that he could get sued or that he could offend her. You know, there's me too, and then there's racial issues and there's all this stuff. So if he's got to take somebody out for a drink and mentor them, he's less likely to pick a multicultural woman than to pick a white male because he's so much more comfortable with the white male. He's going to be polite. He's not going to be mean. He may not discriminate against the multicultural woman at all, but he's a lot less likely to take her under his wing. And so that's one of the challenges around trust. And so we have an honest conversation about that at the beginning of the course. The challenge is most of the senior people that can take you under their wing and help you get ahead are white males. You're a multicultural woman. If you don't know how to cultivate that relationship, you can't just wait for the right multicultural woman who looks just like you to take you under your wing. You know, there just aren't that many of them. So learning how to navigate across differences to create that sense of trust and comfort that would come naturally, more, much more naturally, between a senior white male and a junior white male. So what I'm hearing there is that affinity bias or the similarity bias that we know. It's not a meanness. It's not a, a hey, multicultural women, you know, not at all. It's just create the level of trust you need to really be mentored by somebody and sponsored by somebody and pushed forward by somebody. You might have to be very intentional about that. And so it's fun to see the light bulbs go on. So that's one of the first things we talk about. And then telling and selling your value is a lot of multicultural women feel like they're bragging, you know, and we have a lot of cultural things against bragging. Asian women do not brag. Don't stick yourself up. Don't move yourself forward. And Black women, Hispanic women, we all have different things in our culture that tell us, don't get ahead of yourself. And it's so deeply embedded culturally, isn't it? In the, those particular cultures value in women what does it mean to be a woman in this culture? And it's so fascinating talking to you about this because you know, as a Mauritian woman born in the UK, but my parents were both born and brought up in Mauritius, is that real struggle almost that I've had to navigate in the British culture, what's expected of a woman here and what's acceptable compared to if my parents hadn't chosen to come to the UK, but if I was born in Mauritius, I know that there would have been different expectations of me. It's fascinating. So that will play out in what's expected of women as they enter your programs and that sense of, I don't know how to navigate this struggle internally within me of my cultural heritage and what's expected of me. One of the things I realized as we were researching this and as we started rolling out these programs, and this sounds really silly, but this kind of goes to the core of it, is in most cultures, Women don't ask men to marry them. They are, they wait. If you ask, there's something wrong with you or you're odd or something, you know, what man is supposed to ask you. So how that plays out in corporate America is for a promotion. There's a subtle expectation in women that we shouldn't be asking for a promotion. We should be asked. If we're worthy, somebody will ask us, hey, we're going to promote you. Hey, we're going to do this. And so we don't talk about that a lot, but I think that's one of the things we're overcoming is helping women to understand how to make the case and to enlist the support they need to get the promotions they need. And you know, it's interesting. One of the reasons we position our course at a certain place for different companies in the career ladder and for multicultural women, it has to be lower than where it is for white women. So our course has to occur earlier in the career for multicultural women because they aren't reaching escape velocity. There just aren't as many multicultural women higher up the ladder. They tend to get stuck 
at the sort of entry rungs. There's a whole article called The Broken Rung on the Career Ladder, you know, is multicultural women tend to get stuck in the pipeline earlier than white women. And it makes sense when you think about it because they have double headwinds, right? They have the gender headwinds and then they have the ethnic headwinds. And so they get stuck earlier in the career ladder. And so we have to position our course where they're getting stuck and so that they can reach escape velocity. And so talking about these things like the informal relationships that you need to build and how you tell and sell your value and how you enlist others to tell and sell your value too. I think when people start looking at it in a really practical way, they see how to do it. It's really fun because you see the light bulbs going on in this course for women when they see it's like you're driving at night without headlights on. It's really hard. <laughs> you can turn the headlights on. It just gets so much easier. And they're just able to do that. And then enlisting sponsorships. So then we talk about having sponsors and you can't just start with, hey, you should go get sponsors because we address the informal network issue. You need to have that strong informal relationship in order to have a sponsor, right? And to be able to equip that sponsor to help you. So you need to be able to tell and sell your value so that they can tell your, sell your value, right? Not expecting them to be mind readers, but equipping them to go out and go to bat for you is really important. That's really tough for some women to be able to oh, talk yeah. about themselves in a self-promotion way that feels genuine and doesn't feel like they're bragging, as you say, or playing the political game. I started using that phrase is help them to help you. And that resonates a lot more with multicultural women because we're saying help them. You know, it's like we always want to help other people, right? If we're making it easier for other people to help us, that makes sense to women. Is bragging about yourself or telling people how great you are is really uncomfortable for most multicultural women. But here, you can't expect that person to be a mind reader. You can't expect that person to do all the work to help you. You've got to make it easy for them to help you. And people, oh, they get that. And so it just opens up a lot of doors. And then strategic networking is another topic. And that just takes it to the next level. Is So you've got your mentors, your sponsors, and then you've got a host of other people that could just make an introduction, open a door, do that for you too. And then we talk about authentic leadership. And that's an area where we get into how can it be an advantage that you're a multicultural woman? We've talked about some of the disadvantages and some of the problems. And all along the way, we're using data and studies. You know, We're not just waving our hands and saying this. And I think that makes a big difference because these are smart women. And so being able to show them studies and the facts about what's going on, I think this also helps change behavior. And then authentic leadership, how can you take what's unique about you and use it as an advantage as a leader? not just a disadvantage. And especially as you rise higher, that becomes something that you can really do. And we have some interesting case studies and interviews. And that's another thing is, if you're a multicultural woman, you have so few role models that you're looking at who are accessible. And so being able to share readings and videos and interviews. And then I did a whole podcast because I just needed more source material. So being able to bring that to the table is just so enriching for people because often, as a multicultural woman who's rising up the corporate ladder, you're the only one. It's lonely. Yeah, I get that. And that, I suppose, speaks to the power of having a program for multicultural women, because actually, how amazing for them to be surrounded by women who are similar to them. Of course, they're not exactly the same, but those themes that you're speaking about, you know, and I've run programs for women, there's just almost this sense of relief where they get this moment of, 
all of the stories that you're sharing, these other participants in the room, I get that. That resonates with me. No one else has said that to me before. I thought it was just me. It's so powerful. We see that when we lead courses just for women. Absolutely. But then you also see it when you do for multicultural women on another level too. And our company, Blue Circle Leadership, make sure that we have a significant cohort of multicultural women so that you're hearing all the stories. And so the white women are hearing the stories of the multicultural women and we're bringing that out. Whereas if you aren't intentional about that and you have all women in a course, often the voices of multicultural women are not heard and the unique needs of multicultural women are not addressed. But because we've run programs for just multicultural women, even when we run programs for all women, I think we're able to really help these themes come out. And we use readings that are written by multicultural women. So we are bringing those themes out more too. What I'm really curious about is that there are some, I suppose, personal things that they have to navigate. For example, their own societal expectations or cultural expectations. What is it from an organizational perspective that they're needing to navigate that's different to white women? That's fascinating. Again, and we talked about this a little bit already, is building trust with sponsors so that most of the sponsors are going to be white males. So white women may have those relationships. They may be going to the country club. Oh my gosh, I remember this is a real story about, I think it was a woman of Indian descent who was a member of the country club and she ran into a senior leader from her company and he looked at her and he said, when did you become a nanny? No. Because she was at the country club with her children who were very light skinned and he looked at her and he saw a nanny. He did not see a professional woman who was a member of the club with her own children. And I don't fault him. This is where we go culturally, is that he thought she had left her corporate job and become a nanny. That was his first thought. That's the most logical solution. And actually, thank goodness he blurted it out because he could be corrected. If he did blurt it out, he would just assume. And the next time he saw her, he'd be kind of confused. Like, is she a nanny or a corporate leader? I don't really understand. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, so it's important to forge these kinds of relationships and challenge expectations, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm hearing there is that there is some additional layers of bias or whatever you want to call it, where we have these stereotypes of what Black women or Asian women or multicultural women do and are, and that stays with us. And so there's more things for multicultural women to overcome when they go seemingly against the grain and they are rising up the corporate ladder. Is that right? It's true. Okay, so I have one leg. One of my legs was amputated. And I tend to go through the world acting as if I have two legs, you know, and I walk and I do sports and I do all these things, you know. But there are times when I do need to acknowledge that I have one leg so that I can address it and make it work better. I cycle a lot. I go on these cycle trips for 30 miles a day for a week or so around the world, which I love to do. But at one point, I had to take into account that I had one leg and wear my bike shorts differently because of that. I had to become conscious of it. And I think we see that with the multicultural women is that most of the time they try to move through and just say, I'm going to be just like everybody else. I'm going to be talented. I'm going to work hard and my work will speak for itself. But there are times when unpacking some of these issues that we talked about are important. And you were sort of flipping it and saying, well, what do the executives on the other side of the table need to know too? And it's, I think it's understanding that it's not easy 
for these women to deal with these issues and that a lot of the women are not sort of militant, oh, I know I'm being discriminated against. A lot of them put blinders on and just try to push through. And so having programs like this where they can surface some of these issues and deal with them. And I mean, in our approach is not to whip up a lot of anger, you know, like frustration, but the opposite to say, putting a little bit of attention on this, being intentional about getting the assistance you need and setting your goals and moving up is going to change your world. And that's what we see. We see huge results. We were measuring sort of promotions after the program. And we realized we had to start measuring promotions during the program because it's like an eight-month program. We're finding some people were starting to apply what they learn in months two and three. And by month six, they already were getting an offer for a promotion. And so when we measured the impact of our programs, we had to start measuring anything, any promotion got due to the program, not just after the program. I love the, that concept of that the authenticity that they need to embrace what makes them different and allow their organization to see them for who they are, not push down, not push away. Yeah. We talk about that too, is that how do you use your difference as an asset for your organization? Because they want that. They don't want you just to be the best white male you can be, <laughs> but actually leverage your differences as an advantage for your company. And what would you say to any leaders listening to this in terms of what they can do to actively support multicultural women? I think being intentional about it and creating those informal relationships, there's some discomfort there. It's not a natural act to have a mentor who's different than you, a mentee that's different than you, or sponsor somebody for a promotion who's different than you. We did some research on people getting rebuffed. So if you're a senior white male, for example, and you try to take a black woman under your wing, she may actually push back because she's uncomfortable too. So knowing that that could happen, don't be offended by that and be able to sort of push through that. The point is, it's probably going to be more work to build that trust and comfort across differences to be able to do that. And if you're a white male taking a white woman under your wing, there's a little less barrier to do that. Even if you're a multicultural male who wants to take a multicultural woman under your wing, there's actually often some discomfort there because, so for example, an Indian woman with an Indian male, he's going to be more likely to want her to sort of stand in line and be docile. Adhere to the cultural norms. Almost more so than a white male. So he's got to notice his own biases and his own behavioral cues that's going on in order to overcome that. And a black male with a black woman, there's often tension there, you know, there's history there. And an Asian man with an Asian woman. So it's just being the same ethnicity doesn't necessarily help you <laughs> to do this better either. It's sort of leaning in against our unconscious behaviors, be able to do this. And so it's a great course to be able to do that. And when we run the course, we talk to the managers of the women in the course too, and give them a little bit of training and some insight into what's happening because we don't want them to just sheep dip. Just send the women to us, we'll dip them and then send them back all fixed, you know. So we enlist the help of the HR and diversity professionals, we enlist their managers. And I think that it not only helps this woman who's in our course today, but the experience of the managers and the HR folks is, is likely to permeate and help other women in the future too. 
Absolutely. It's a whole whole system approach, not just working with the people who are experiencing the barriers. You get the system, right? And we're all in a system. I don't blame anyone. I don't blame the women. I don't blame the managers. It's enough to make you crazy. The subtle pressures that are at work and make it difficult for women and minorities to be able to navigate the career ladder. Yeah. And they are really subtle, aren't they? Particularly if you don't experience them personally, just take white men, for example, who might not experience personally what it feels like for these barriers to play out for them is so intangible. It's so subtle. It can really be hard work to explain to them why a different type of leadership is necessary to support these women. I think the leaders who put a participant through kind of do get to be a fly on the wall and to hear some of the conversations and some of the things going on. And I I think it's really eye-opening. I think most people mean well. And it's funny, I see this with my disability as well. Sometimes by meaning well, they just never want to mention it. Don't talk about it. Don't say anything. Okay, you're just like everyone else, you know. And that works to a point. And there's a point past which it's not helpful. It's the opposite of help. Is let's just pretend like you're not different. It's not, yeah. And I get that. It's tricky striking that balance, but maybe even asking permission. At times, people won't be offended if you say, I'd really like to ask you a question related to your missing leg. Would you be open to me asking you? And some people will be, no, actually, I'd rather you didn't. If you're not comfortable, then say. Not people would say that. I wouldn't say that. It's interesting, you know, and people try to be careful and people try to be polite. I find most people try to be careful and polite. But yeah, at some point, we do need to talk about things. Now, I can't not speak about your books, right? So I can't spend 45 minutes with you and not talk about your books. I would love to hear more about your latest book, really, which is the Micro Resilience book, Minor Shifts for Major Boosts, um, which you wrote together with your husband, if that's right. What inspired that focus or topic of book? And and what do you think is behind the attention that you've got from it? Wow. I think I wanted to write on resilience because this is what people are drawn to me for, is I've been really resilient in my life to overcome disability, to be the first African-American to win Winter Olympic medal. I've had to overcome a lot and my family wasn't rich. So I've been very resilient. It's interesting though, because I've written a number of books and they're inspirational books. And a lot of them have been about my story. People wanted to know more about my story. But this micro resilience book is really more about research. It's very research based and looking at what is the science behind being more resilient. So some of it is based on my experience of being resilient myself, but a lot of it is based on research about what's out there and what's working to help yourself and your teams to be more resilient. And it's funny, the timing, it came out just before the pandemic hit. And so, of course, the interest just skyrocketed. You know, people were interested in resilience. And again, worldwide, people are interested in resilience. The book's been published in Japanese and Korean. There's a translation into British. (laughs) Is that got a different cover? It's got an orange cover publisher that published it in Britain. And of course, you know, you have to change the S's and the Z's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The British publication was the one that went around the Commonwealth to Australia and New Zealand. And so anyway, it's been around the world really getting this conversation going about how can we be intentional? How can we use science to help us and our teams be more resilient? It's not just about picking yourself up over and over again, because you get exhausted from doing that but being able to use science. And we called it micro-resilience because it's tiny things that you can do 
get more sleep, eat right. You're going to be more resilient if you do those things over the long term. But these are things that if you do it now, you're more resilient for the rest of the day. It has an immediate effect. And so that we called it micro resilience because it's little things you do that make you more resilient immediately. Now, I do think there's a cumulative effect of doing small things, but it's nice because it gives you that immediacy. And you practice those? I do. And it takes a while, I think, to create them as habits. So you can read the book and that's great, but we have a lot of little videos too to just say, here's how you do this, here's how you do that. And I think if you focus on one of the techniques for a week and practice it, you know, and get better at it and then pick another one and focus on that. So you can build the habits and it's made a huge difference for me and a lot more of it is habit now than it used to be. Oh, well, congratulations on the book, firstly, and thank you, because actually the world does need practical tips for resilience, for sure. If you connect with me on social media, I'm on uh, Instagram, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, definitely. I put out these hacks over time, too. You can get some of these videos. We'll put some links up on the show notes page so people can get access. I just want people to have some practical things they can do. That would be great all of my guests and that's because i'm writing the book beyond discomfort this year and i'm curious as to something you have personally had to work through because of your discomfort when it comes to leading inclusively it's interesting having a course for multicultural women leaders was actually kind of a discomfort point for me to do that because as a business person, that's a small audience, right? So I thought, no, I should be doing leadership for all people or all women, you know, that these are bigger markets to go after. And that just makes more sense. And uh, focusing specifically on multicultural women felt very narrow, you know, and why should I have to do that? Because you identify personally as well? As a multicultural woman? Yes. Oh, no, no, no I do. There was a little bit of a struggle about it because I felt, why should I be forced to go after a really small market and have less income by doing that versus doing a broader audience? Shouldn't I be able to teach all women leadership or all people? I had always looked at myself in a broader way that I could succeed on the broad stage. Why should I be forced to go to the narrow stage? Anyway, but I wanted to help multicultural women. I started looking for partners. I'm a small company. What's a big company that I could partner with that would do this? And really found that big companies weren't interested in doing it because it was a small market, right? And so we really did this. Blue Circle Leadership really pioneered this back in 2016. And not just looking at multicultural women who were near the C-suite, because that's what most people want to do is near the C-suite. And really figuring out, you know, we've got to go further down the pipeline and we'll do it virtually so that we can reach that broader audience at a price point that will work at that level in the company because people won't spend big dollars on that part of the pipeline. So leaning into doing that, and I think I think we thought, oh, well, we'll just do it because I want to. It's sort of a passion project, but in the meantime, I'm going to work on resilience and I'm going to work on these other broad topics. But it has become a really important part of what we do. And I said this earlier, but I'll just reiterate it, is even when we do a women's leadership course, which we do, we do a lot of women's leadership courses, we are able to weave in this element of the multicultural women and it's good for any multicultural women who are in the course, but it's also good, I think, for the white women who are in the course to understand how to be allies to other women. 
And so we have these really rich courses, whether they're strictly for multicultural women or for all women, where we're really addressing the needs of multicultural women. So you say, what's hard to do? And people might be surprised to hear that as a multicultural woman, it was hard for me to say, I'm really going to specialize in this. And I didn't expect it to be a big part of my business, but it has turned out, it has really grown. I mean, especially when we had the Black Lives Matter movement and the Asian bashing that went on. And there were some things that happened during the pandemic that really drove this business to grow. And so we've got a huge practice in doing this around the world. And I find that really gratifying, but it was a discomfort for me to say, I'm going to aim at this tiny market that I didn't think would be a viable market. And most people didn't think it would be a viable market. As it turns out, it was the right time and the right thing to do. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared today, Bonnie. It's been amazing chatting to you, hearing your stories, learning about the work that you do and some of the barriers that multicultural women face and, and what you're doing to support them. Thank you so much. Happy to answer questions. If people want to touch with me on social media and ask questions that are uncomfortable, a lot of times the questions are really uncomfortable, right? No question is stupid and uh, happy to do that. Amazing. Well, the link to everything that Bonnie and I spoke about today is going to be available on the usual page at avenirconsultingservices.com under podcasts. I've loved speaking to you. I could carry on. We could do a part two at some point, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you. And I'm so glad you're providing this information to your audience. It's so important. And I uh, just love working with you. Thank you, Bonnie. That concludes season three of the Why Care podcast. What a way to end another brilliant season. There's so much of what Bonnie shared that resonated with me as a multicultural woman myself, particularly navigating cultural expectations and learning to leverage the difference we bring rather than being the best white man we can possibly be. Do let Bonnie and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. Huge thanks to Mario Kenji for editing this podcast and Glory Olibori for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media. 